Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guests are Yonatan Arbel, Assistant Professor of Law at the University of Alabama School of Law, and Roy Shapira, Associate Professor at the IDC in Israel. We will discuss their article, Theory of the Nudnik, The Future of Consumer Activism and What We Can Do to Stop It, which will be published in the Vanderbilt Law Review. So welcome to the show, Jonathan and, and Ray. And Thanks for having us. Hi, Brian. Thanks for having us. <laughs> yeah. Well, so for listeners who might not be as familiar with the sort of regulation and theory of consumer transactions, I mean, I wonder if you could just kind of briefly situate them in sort of the existing literature. So how do legal scholars traditionally think about the regulation of consumer transactions and the role of consumer uh, activism in relation to that regulatory regime? Yes. So this is a very basic and important question. Uh, And this is the starting point for this project. How do consumers hold sellers accountable? Where does market discipline come from? And this is really important because it determines the scope of legal intervention in consumer markets. How much consumer protection we need depends on how effective internal market regulatory forces are. But there is much that we don't understand about the source of internal market uh, disciplinary powers. And one really influential theory that has been going on for quite some time is the informed minority theory. This is the theory that holds that, sure, not all consumers read the fine print, but there is this small minority of consumers who really engage with contracts, really read the fine print. And if they see something they don't like, they move to a competitor. They will move to a different firm. And so in competing over this small segment of the market, firms will have to offer better terms to all of us. That's the informed minority theory. And the problem is that we are discovering that this minority might not exist, that very few people actually read the fine print, too few for firms to actually care about. And so we're left wondering, where does market discipline comes from? And this is where this article comes. And we suggest that one force of market discipline is the nudnik. Uh, So what are the nudniks? These are the, the consumers who call in to complain, who demand to speak with a manager, who write long online reviews, uh, complain to the regulator, write on social media and share with others uh, their experiences. And these nudniks are an important force of market discipline. They're deeply misunderstood, usually not very well accepted by the public. They're viewed as petty or idiosyncratic, uh, but they perform a really essential service to the rest of us. Mm. Well, so how then is a nudnik different from an informed consumer? Nudniks come to the transaction at a later stage. The informed minority, in theory, would be a person who reads the contract before buying the product. 
reading the fine print, seeing if they like the term or not, and then deciding whether to purchase or not on this basis. But again, very few people actually read the fine print in that way. Nudniks are different. They come to the transaction with a set of transactional expectations. Transactional expectations are the set of beliefs we all have when we go and buy something about the proper level of service, what norms govern, how what what constitutes fair treatment by the seller. So we, we go to a restaurant, we expect the food to be served in a timely manner. And this expectation doesn't come necessarily from a contract. It comes from a background set of expectations. And so the Nudnik approaches the transaction in this way. And when sellers disappoint, they take action. And this is really important because consumer activism that's based on people who read contracts becomes less and less feasible as contracts become longer and harder to read. But consumer activism that's based on transactional expectations is a much more realistic model of how people behave. Uh, So this is why we think the Nudnik offers a more realistic restatement of our understanding of market discipline. Well, maybe to make it more concrete, you could give some particular examples of nudnik behavior, why we might, from a kind of theoretical standpoint, see nudnik behavior as unlikely or unexpected, and how nudnik behavior can have a positive effect on the attentiveness of uh, sellers to consumer expectations. Okay, great. So here is our favorite example. The year is 2014. Uh, Ben Edelman, he's a professor uh, at the Harvard Business School. He orders Chinese using an online menu from a local restaurant. And when he gets the food delivered, he goes and he checks, he reviews the check, against the online menu. And he discovers that he was overcharged by $4. So he sits down and he writes an email to the owner of the restaurant saying, you know, I was overcharged, what's going on? And the owner responds saying, well, you use the online menu and that's out of date for quite some time. We don't keep it updated. Uh, We use the actual physical menu in the restaurant for, uh, to charge our clients. And he responds, okay, but that's illegal. You can't just charge based on on something that was not advertised to the consumer. Uh, And the owner says, fine, we'll give you your $4 back. And Edelman responds, well, actually, under Massachusetts law, you have to pay treble damages in cases like that. So not $4, $12. Also, I'm reporting you to the regulator. And this leads to this very long correspondence between the parties that eventually leaks to the media. And when the public learns about this interaction, there is a huge amount of negativity, but it's directed not at the overcharging restaurant, but at Edelman himself. People call him petty and privileged. And what people pay less attention to is the important service, public service he performed. 
And so part of this project, we called the restaurant and we replicated his order five years after the fact. And we used the online menu again. But this time, the price was 100% accurate down to the penny. So the restaurant changed its behavior based on the activity of this Nudnik. And so this gives us a sense of how Nudniks perform and in the ways in which Nudniks are special. Nudniks are idiosyncratic in many ways. Uh, most consumers are passive. Uh, one study in marketing finds that 96% of consumers don't take any action when sellers disappoint. And so there is only these 4% of consumers who are actually active. And to be active, you have to have some something special about you, something idiosyncratic, something unique about your preference function, because it usually does not pay to be active. It usually does not pay to write long online reviews. It usually does not pay to you personally to complain to the regulator, or sometimes even bringing a lawsuit doesn't pay. But the Nudnik doesn't care about that. For the Nudnik, it's a matter of principle. It's in their blood. When they feel their transactional expectations have been violated by the seller, they need to take action. And the Edelman case provides a very vivid illustration of that. And we, in the paper, we provide many other examples of other Nudniks who are very effective in changing the behavior of even very large sellers in the market. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it struck me that like the traditional story kind of relies on an informed minority of consumers acting in an economically rational way. But it seems like the, the kind of the, the, the problem is that it ends up not actually being economically rational for people to act in that way, and maybe not even rational for sellers to respond to the very small minority who do. Whereas when it comes to nudniks, the actual strength in a weird way is the irrationality of their behavior. Yes, we are very agnostic on the question of whether the Nudniks are rational, strictly speaking, or not. They are definitely taking action in situations that do not pass the cost-benefit analysis for the standard per person. So financially, spending hours corresponding with the owner of a restaurant over a $4 overcharge it's really unjustified. Even getting the $12 back will not recover one's uh, value of time. So in that sense, it's irrational, but it's in a deeper sense. It may be irrational because if the thing you care about is your own sense of justice, then it might make perfect sense for you to take action. And the Nudink activism and there are service to the market is one half of the paper. In the second half, we turn and look at how new technologies, new emerging technologies go and change the balance of powers between nudniks and firms. And so, Roy, maybe you want to say something about it? Well, sure, why not? So I, I, guess, I guess the setup here is that we have two big arguments in the paper. You, you, you started talking about how market discipline works and uh, we've talked thus far about how things work from the consumer side, right? But we also look at how things work from the seller side. So another way to put it is that uh, you started by talking about the informed minority theory. And when we started thinking about it, we realized that we have two crawls with the conventional account. The first problem we have with the conventional account is that they focus too much on consumer reading behavior. 
while in fact most of the work, most of the action is being done through consumer complaining behavior after the fact. So Jonathan talked about that. The second problem we had, the second part of the paper, is that conventional accounts focus too much on what consumers do, right? Instead of asking, instead of studying how sellers react to these nudnicks. And so we started digging into the, um, there's a literature that's called consumer complaining behavior literature, mostly practitioner-oriented, but also marketing scholars. We started looking into uh, companies' practices, and, and we found out pretty quickly that companies are well aware of the role of these uh, serial complainers through all of these nudniks, and that companies have long invested heavily in trying to appease and disarm these uh, pesky consumers. And and so precisely because nudniks are so effective in causing trouble and creating these uh, legal risks and reputational risks to sellers, sellers have always invested in trying to appease or silence them. And the most, I think, important point that we stumbled upon is that in recent years, sellers have reached a breakthrough. That is, they now have the technological ability uh, to identify who among the potential consumers is a nudnik. And, and once you as a seller can identify potential nudniks before they even uh, stepped foot in your store, the minute they enter your website, so you can either avoid selling to nudniks altogether, or if you can't do that, you will offer the nudniks a slightly different service. You perhaps offer them a preferential treatment so that they, they won't fight you publicly. They won't draw others' attention to your underperformance. They won't cause all these legal and reputational risks. So, so that's a development that is uh, very good for sellers, of course. It's actually even a development that, that is good for nudniks in many instances, to the extent that sellers try to uh, silence them, disarm them by offering them preferential treatment. But it's a development that's very troubling for the rest of us. It's a development that's very troubling for consumer markets because now consumer markets lose um, um, a large part of uh, we call the Nudniks kind of the engine of market discipline. We lose all these uh, positive spillovers that Nudniks generate when they fight a seller publicly and they, they, they generate valuable information. They post a negative review online and so on and so forth. Mm. Well, maybe you could talk a little bit about why specifically nudnik behavior is so effective in sort of policing and in policing seller behavior and incentivizing sellers to respond to complaints about their behavior. I mean, what about nudniks makes them such a powerful tool of market discipline? Right. So I think I think I think we can answer that in one word. And that one word is reputation. Right. So sellers have uh, uh, reputational incentives. Uh, they, they want to maintain their reputation. They want to protect their reputation. They want to further boost their reputation. So, of course, in today's world with social media, uh, one single consumer uh, posting a, a certain um, negative review that goes viral can affect your stock prices uh, immensely. So we have, a, Jonathan alluded to it, we have a few examples in the paper of, uh, um, you know, uh, kind of a businessman from Chicago uh, that uh, flew his father um, to visit him. And uh, I think it was United Airlines. Jonathan, correct me if I'm wrong. Or was it British Airways? Yeah, British Airways. Yeah, right. British, British Airways. And so British Airways lost his father's luggage in, uh, in the connection in Paris. And this guy goes to Twitter and he vents his frustration, like most of us do. 
but he doesn't start. He says something like, you know, don't don't ever fly with British Airways. They always lose your luggage and uh, they'll frustrate you. But then he adds a very interesting twist to it, which is he pays Twitter uh, $1,000 to have his uh, tweet diffused to um, targeted advertising, targeted complaint advertising to Seventy thousand again, Jonathan. Correct me if I'm wrong. Seventy thousand, seventy thousand uh, British Airways consumers, and so that's a huge. That's a that, 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 that's millions and millions of of dollars of of harm that this single nudnik, annoyed by the company's performance, can cause. So so that's that's uh, that's the power of today's uh, uh, information environment, today's internet. And so he turns this complaint advertising tool and he, he, he causes a huge reputational damage to the company. So companies are aware of that. Companies are aware that a single consumer may cause you to lose hundreds of millions of dollars. That's, 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 um, that's not even an exaggeration. So uh, that, that, I guess, is the origin of why um, uh, Nudniks matter and why sellers have so much incentive, so much resources invested in trying to identify who is a nudnik and disarm these people before they complain advertise and make you lose so much uh, future business opportunities. And maybe a few examples of how companies do it today. Uh, and these are things, dynamics that uh, many people are unaware of, but represent huge industries and huge investments. Uh, one of them through big data Companies are able to score consumers on a variety of metrics. We are all familiar with the credit score, and we all take it into account when we decide uh, how many accounts to open and so on. Uh, and we care about maintaining our credit score. But increasingly, we find scores used to measure consumers on many other metrics like profitability and even things related to nudnikism. And if you, we all have some score, some place that we are unaware of, we don't even know whether it's accurate or not, where companies measure rank us on how profitable we are, how to treat us. When we call a call center, they use the score to determine how long we should be placed on hold. And if you're a high value customer, you're going to wait less time. And, and if you're not, if you're a nudnik, maybe they'll have you uh, waiting forever or may treat you differently. And so consumer scores are a very big industry. It's growing today with big data. We are able to offer more and more predictive scoring and identify nudniks in advance. Using that, more and more companies are able to detect the nudniks in advance, tailor their treatment of the nudnik and avoid the problems that would come from someone like the Hassan Syed example, the guy who flew British Airways, uh, and their complaint advertising, online negative online reviews. If you're influential on, if you're an influencer on social media, maybe you'll get a different treatment than if you're a normal person. Uh, and through all of that, the market is deprived of a very important source of information mostly reputational information. 
Well, so how do we know that nudniks aren't just kind of like a version of troll? Like, how do we know they're not just engaging in destructive economic behavior or maybe self-interested economic behavior? What reason is there to think that nudnik behavior is actually going to be social beneficial for your average non-nudnik consumer? I mean, I mean that, 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 that's a good question, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, the short answer is we don't really know in the sense that we cannot offer an exact uh, quantification of the net cost and benefits of Nudnix. But what we can offer, and we try to be careful about it, but what we can offer is that we can offer a set of indications uh, based, again, on these um, uh, literature of consumer complaining behavior about why do consumers complain, when do they complain, how do they complain. And that literature tells you, uh, gives you uh, several strong indications that on average, on a whole, these serial complainers complain about real issues. You know, there's a correlation between the quality of the product and their complaints. It's not like they complain uh, randomly like trolls would just for the attention. If the seller sells a better product, they stop complaining. If the seller sells a worse product, they complain more. Uh, so there's kind of the, these indications that on average, the Knicks are behaving in, uh, in good faith and raise real issues. Uh, of course, some of them on the margin at the cross-sectional variation, some of them may be trolls, some of them may raise uh, petty issues that are unrepresentative of what other consumers uh, uh, want or prefer. But uh, so I guess our claim here is a modest claim. Our claim here is that, again, instead of focusing on consumer reading behavior, instead of counting how many consumers read the contract before the purchase, start focusing on consumer complaining behavior, because this is what the companies are focusing on. This is where most of the action in market discipline goes on. And uh, once we start studying it more, maybe we'll also have more uh, kind of pinpointed evidence on the types of nudniks that bring value and the types of nudniks that destroy value. And I would only add one thing to that, which is the future as we see it with companies taking charge of targeting nudniks, offering them treatment, differential treatments so that the nudniks will not complain. In this future, we will not have the bad nudniks and we will not have the good nudniks. So some nudniks, even if some nudniks are trolls, other nudniks are genuinely motivated by uh, a sincere desire to rectify a wrong, like the Ben Edelman example. And if firms can in advance know who the nudniks are, they're going to silence all of them, both the trolls and the ones that can provide important social value especially the ones that can provide important uh, social failure, right? Exactly right, because that will resonate more. It will be more likely to go viral if a consumer is complaining about something that's real, that many people feel the same. When uh, side is complaining about lost luggage, it's an experience we are familiar with, and it's more likely to go viral. And so if I'm a rational seller, I'm going to invest many more resources in silencing people who are likely to complain about real things. And so maybe the real question, the, the important question is not whether some nudniks are trolls, but rather what will happen if firms are able to disarm all nudniks. 
I mean, is it fair to say maybe that one of the reasons that Nudnik behavior can have such a powerful reputational effect is that in a sense, like the good Nudniks or the true Nudnik, as it were, is expressing a frustration that other consumers also feel, but are just are insufficiently motivated to voice? Absolutely. Uh, that's how reputational sanctions work. That's exactly how reputational sanctions work. And that's another part of the conventional account that is uh, under-articulated. So for a reputational sanction to work, you need one, information, somebody that will go and invest in actually writing a detailed negative review online is one example, right? You need that information, but information doesn't automatically translate into reputation, right? It has to be uh, uh, perceived as credible, um, it has to be uh, diffused widely so that other consumers will also take their business elsewhere for the um, for the reputational sanction to mean anything. And so Nudniks complain, like Jonathan said before, when Nudniks complain about if a Nudnik will post, if, if this guy on Twitter will post something about Amazon not shipping things quickly enough, then my guess is that people will discount it because people have very positive experience with Amazon shipments. But if the Nudniks raise a certain issue that most of us usually don't notice these overcharges of $4. I mean, Jonathan does, but Jonathan is a, well, forget about it. Well, I, 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 won't, I won't notice, I won't notice the $4. Yeah. yeah biography. Yeah. Yeah. This is, a, we had some inside information to the world of Nudniks here. So uh, I won't notice the $4 uh, overcharge. Most of us won't notice the $4 overcharge. Even if we do, we will not go and kind of uh, share this information with fellow consumers. Nudniks do. And when they do, and when they do it on issues that resonate, when they do it on complaints, exactly like you said, Brian, when you do it on complaints that are uh, kind of strike us as reasonable, this is when the reputational sanction is really meaningful. And again, Jonathan said it again, it's, it's exactly because of that, that sellers will have all the incentives in the world. Think about British Airways losing hundreds of millions of dollars from this one guy's tweet. British Airways now has a uh, $100 million size of, uh, you know, 100 million reasons to invest in trying to identify <laughs> the next Nudnik before this guy writes his tweet, right? Mm. Well, so then from a kind of a broader policy perspective, how should kind of regulators, for example, think about the positive potential role of the Nudnik in, in policing seller behavior? I mean, to the extent regulators can do anything to sort of maintain the role of the Nudnik in the consumer ecosystem, what kind of options do they have? In the paper, we try to outline a menu of options that are open to regulators, that are open to judges, and even some ideas for scholars to think about in the future. Uh, and very generally speaking, one thing we say is we can make it easier to be a Nudnik and we can make it harder to target nudniks. So if we have firms collecting information on who's likely to be a nudnik and they adapt their behavior accordingly, maybe there should be limits on that, or at least there should be some transparency so that we will know that firms are targeting us, treating us differently on this basis. And there is this large literature that's being written today about personalization of contracts and big data generally. And the discussion usually goes between 
big data is great and personalization is wonderful because we can adjust all the contracts to what the specific person really wants and needs. And then some concerns with privacy maybe or privacy discrimination and other types of discrimination. And what we try to highlight here is that there is another concern here with personalized contracts that firms can use them to avoid positive spillovers created by nodeniks. So understanding the risk and thinking about ways to solve it is really important. It's an important first step. And we highlight a few ways in which regulators can do that. Courts also should be aware that people who complain about things that appear petty are not necessarily, should not necessarily be discounted. We need people who complain about things that appear petty, appear de minimis, and we need to take them a little bit more seriously because they provide an important source of market discipline. And one interesting uh, thing that Roy has written about is when you think about small lawsuits, a person bringing a lawsuit over $50, very few people actually do that. And many of the cases settle very early, but that creates a public record. And journalists will often pick up on this trail of breadcrumbs and write investigative reports. And that's another important channel of reputation through the legal system. And we want to preserve that. We want to make it easier for nudniks to bring their actions, their lawsuits to the courts. And there is strong opposition from courts and judges need to understand better the internal psychology uh, of the nudnik. So, so if, I, if, I, if I can interject, so I guess... I guess... I guess the idea here, and I always like to think about it that way, is that we dovetail with the settlement versus trial or mandatory arbitration or ADR literature, right? And, 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 and the debate there always talks about what happens after the claiming stage, right? Can you settle or not? Can you settle confidentially or not? And what we're talking about here is settling even before the blaming stage, right? Settling very, very early before you know you have a complaint. And if you settle very early and if the firms can target these nudniks early and silent them early or avoid them altogether, then it, it does what Jonathan said, which is it leaves no breadcrumbs, right? And so if you settle early and you don't have any public record of the complaint being filed, then no journalist can later pick that up and, 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 and see that there's a, a, a bigger story to write about. No future consumers who suffer from the same problem um, uh, will know that. And so that dilutes the legal and the reputational uh, deterrence. Mm, yeah, so I love this paper. Uh, I love the title. I love the theory. I found it totally compelling and fascinating. Um, but I couldn't help thinking of something that hits kind of host, close to home for me, and I bet hits close to home for you too. So I was wondering if in closing, you, the two of you could kind of think about the theory of the Nudnik in relation to other markets or maybe even other kinds of markets. And here specifically, I'm thinking about the market for higher education teaching. Right. So, you know, what do we get after at the end of every semester is we get teaching evaluations and boy, there's some nudniks show up <laughs> in 
the teacher evaluations. I wonder what you think about that. I mean, is that something we should also be encouraging? Uh, are Nudniks necessarily going to be offering useful information in relation to markets of that kind? Or should we be skeptical, not just on self-interested terms, but on in relation to the interests of the other non-Nudnik student consumers? I think that's a great example. So I think, Brian, think about it that way. If, if you're a seller now and you're in, in this market that you talked about, the higher education, and you now have the predictive analytics software that allows you, or you don't need a predictive analytics software because you already know them, that allows you to know that these free students are the ones that are going to um, make your student evaluation uh, look very uh, uh, bad. And so you can maybe, uh, you know, pass the uh, the test or give them the the evaluation forms when these few students are not there or don't give the evaluation test specifically to these free students. So basically you doctor your uh, evaluation scores. And my intuition would be that that would be a very bad thing for the quality of teaching, right? Or that's, that's at least what I would think. Yes. I think that consumer, I mean, we've not written about it. So just my, my, casual thoughts. Student evaluations are complicated and they're complicated by a variety of factors that have to do with the instructor, with the student, uh, and the match between them. It is still the case that many students are silent. They don't provide any feedback unless you prod them to. And I, I, I'm a firm believer in the value of feedback when you do discount, you do all of the discounting exposed when you have the information, and then you can adjust uh, your reading of the feedback based on, on whatever factors you think are intervening. But cutting this source of information early would be unhelpful, as uh, Roy suggested. Brian, I think, I, I, I think that to me, and I, you know, maybe also to avid listeners of, of, of the podcast, I think you had a couple of weeks ago um, a podcast with uh, Alexander Roberts, if I recall correctly, about the regulating influencers, right? So, so to me, the flip side of what you talked about there illustrates our answer here, which is to say, so there you focused on how do we regulate all these misleading claims uh, about uh, products before the influencers. But if, if you recall correctly, the first minutes of the podcast there you talked about, Alexandra talked about, I should say, about something that's very different in the world today about influencers. So when we think about influencers, we think about Kim Kardashian selling a certain lotion or Gwyneth Paltrow selling a certain crystal bead on Instagram, right? But And then Alexandra said that that's not how things work nowadays. So nowadays, companies realize that instead of um, investing in these mega influencers, they switch to invest in these nano-influencers, which is individuals like you and me who may have something like 500 followers on Twitter or 500 followers on Instagram. And the companies realize that the level of engagement that these nano-influencers have with their uh, feed, with their followers, it makes it a much more cost-effective investment, right? And so you went on to discuss all the legal aspects of how do we regulate influencers. And what Jonathan and I try to do here is try to make you think about the underlying assumption that we didn't talk about. And that is, how do sellers know? So sellers can now measure the exact reputation impact 
that each one on Instagram, each one on Twitter will have on their reputation. And so when we talk about the influencers, we talk about how do you boost your reputation with the help of each single individual consumer, right? And we talk about the flip side. We talk about the other side. Sellers also know how much of a reputation risk each individual consumer uh, poses. And like, so we go back, go back to your example of higher education. Sellers, in this example, if we'll extrapolate it here, will know exactly um, uh, the uh, reputation, so to speak, risk from the student evaluation scores for each and every one of your of your students. So it, it's very easy for you then to just kind of um, uh, block away or silent the, the, the more negative information and highlight the more positive information. And that makes the whole feedback, the way that Jonathan put it, the, the whole feedback system less informative. Mm. Well, I'm so flattered that you're a listener and um, <laughs> and I, I really can't say how much I appreciate the two of you coming on the show. Like I said, I thought the paper was great and funny and a really good read. And it really got me thinking in a productive way about how we think about um, the regulation of consumer transactions. Brian, thank you for the podcast. Thank you for a wonderful conversation. Uh, we had lots of fun. Thanks a lot. Good morning, class. Today's lesson is on commercial Yiddish. A businessman is a gentleman with ulcers known as a ganze knacker. A ganze knacker. A ganze knacker is a guy who refused to work for somebody else for 12 hours a day, so he opened his own place and now works 18 hours a day for himself. <laughs> Nobody can tell him when to drop dead. <laughs> There is a type of businessman known as Adreyer. Adreyer. If you ask Adreyer how he makes a living, he answers, <laughs> If he gets into difficulties, he says, So what's going to happen? <laughs> a business must have mazel. Mazel is something which only a competitor possesses. A business may also include a schlimazel or partner. Ashley Partners never talk to each other, only about each other or behind each other. There is nothing in the, that the partners wouldn't do for each other, and that's the way they live. Sam does nothing for Max, and Max does nothing for Sam. Sometimes a business may afford to carry a tsuchepenish or son-in-law. A It takes three words in English to ask, how is business? In Yiddish, just one word does the trick. No. No. To which the standard reply is, In dread mein Geld. In dread mein Geld. Or you may answer with a simple, Oi. Oi. Oi means Monday we sold one suit, Tuesday we didn't sell any, and today it's even worse. What, what could be worse? worse? What could be worse? They brought back the suit from Monday. Oi. <laughs> You will meet in business such characters as an Oreitnik. He's a guy who makes $5,000 a year. If he makes over $5,000, he is automatically labeled Aganeth. <laughs> Many businesses have a tailor's man. 
A talisman is an employee who must eat lunch only when it gets busy. <laughs> Here are a few expressions which anyone intending to go into business should have at his command. For example, the bank. The word bank is never used by itself, but must be used in combinations like the bank as pa brenzel this well. <laughs> or a bobemeister, which means money refunded cheerful. <laughs> there are creditors and preferred creditors. A preferred creditor can be told to drop dead immediately. The others will have to wait six months. <laughs> Finally, there is a wonderful Yiddish word known as parfum. Parfum is used when a customer says, I like the suit very much, but I will have to ask my wife. Parfum! <laughs>